You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. Um, first thing, you're all extremely welcome, especially on such a grim day. Hopefully this um, will bring a little bit of joy into everybody's lives on a wet, dreary uh, November uh, day. Please come on in. Um, my name is Jane Wilmore, I'm the director of the Trinity Long Room Hub. And it's always lovely to be able to welcome people. And there's a lot of new faces, so a lot of people who I don't recognise. Great that you're here in the hub. It's fantastic, as I say, to see so many of you here in the hub. These fellows in focus um, are very much part of our signature events. We had a wonderful one with John Morrow, actually, Mihol interviewed, uh, had a fellow in focus with John uh, uh, last month. I'm absolutely delighted that Dan Geary is here to have a conversation with Julian Borg, who joins us from Boston College. Um, I just want to say a few words about what the fellow in focus, I mean, what the fellow in focus is about. It's to really allow us to get a more in-depth understanding of the research done by our visiting research fellows. So those of you who are familiar with the Hub know that we invite colleagues in our seven constituent schools to nominate visiting fellows. And then every year we have uh, fellows coming from across the arts humanities uh, who then are with us for anything up to three months. We also have 12 month co-fund fellows that are through an international embedded process. But it's, it's really the short-term fellows that the uh, Fellows in Focus uh, uh, series is, is around. Um, uh, Julian has been with us already for a month. Uh, we gave a coffee morning on Wednesday and I think probably that's why so many people are here Talk about leaving the table feeling hungry uh, for more. It was such a great, really whetted our appetites. Um, uh, uh, but, but he already has made such a huge contribution to the community uh, here in the Hub. And this is really an opportunity to learn a little bit more uh, about his research. He also, and Dan might say a few words about it, will be giving a formal paper. Do you want to sneak in over there? And grab a sandwich as you put past. Um, Dan will say a few, uh, 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 talk about the seminar that he's, he's giving, or hopefully is giving, hasn't already given. Um, so, so anyway, Julian's been fabulous to have you here in the hub. You've been already, as I say, a phenomenal part of the community. And Dan, we appreciate the fact you nominated um, uh, uh, Julian. I appreciate you guys also have a history going back to was it graduate school, um, and maybe that'll come out in the conversation. Um, you've been a, a terrific mentor and collaborator. Uh, so the format for the next 50 minutes is basically a conversation between Dan and, and Julian, and then it's open to Q&A. The one thing that we'll guarantee is that we'll be finished at five to the hour to let people go uh, to class or what have you. Uh, there is lunch for those of you who've just come in. Please help yourself. It's not supposed to be overly formal, so do feel free to get up and uh, have sandwiches. So without further ado, um, uh, Dan, over to you. Yeah, great. Um, do I need the mic? You do. Okay. It's there live. It's, it's live. Oh, it is live now. Am, am I good? Am I speaking? Is yeah, that working? Yeah. Yeah? yeah. Okay, perfect. Um, right, well, so it's my pleasure to speak today with Julian Borg, uh, associate professor at Boston College, author of From Revolution to Ethics, May 1968, Contemporary French Thought, among other works. And as Jane mentioned, he's, uh, he's working on a conceptual history of terrorism since the late 18th century, uh, and he'll be presenting from that work on 19th of November here at the Hub at 6 p.m., speaking on the First World War and the history of terrorism. So look out for that. Uh, you know, I've had a 
I get the lifelong dream to be a like a radio uh, host or like an early morning TV show host, and this is about as uh, close as I'll, I'll ever get to that uh, reality. Um, I do want to start with a little bit of intellectual biography, if you don't mind, Julian. And uh, I know we discussed particular questions, but really wanted to ask you about your relationship with your mother and the Catholic Church, <laughs> and uh, and really how how that makes you feel. Um, no, that's are those different things. <laughs> seriousness, I do want to go back to the time that we met when we were both uh, graduate students at the University of California, Berkeley. This was in the 90s and the, and the aughts. And uh, we were both doing intellectual history there. You were doing European intellectual history there with Martin Jay. I was doing American intellectual history with David Hollander. And there was a big cohort of both of us. And I, I just wonder if you could explain what you, how you see intellectual history and how you see that informing your work you know, throughout your career as, a, as an approach. Mm-hmm. All right, well, thank you. Well, first of all, I just want to say a great thank you and word of gratitude to Jane and Dan, especially the staff here at The Hub. It's been an incredibly welcoming, stimulating environment. I've been more productive in the past month than I have in the past year, so I'm very grateful to be here. So I, I first heard the phrase intellectual history when I was 17. There was a summer school sponsored by the state of Tennessee, where I'm from, uh, to spend a month thinking about the humanities. And it really shows how important this early seed encouragement is of thinking about the humanities for people before they go to university. So when I went to the university, um, I thought I was interested in philosophy. And I went to my first philosophy class, and there were two things that were going wrong. One, it was analytic philosophy, which felt like math with words. And the other thing was that it was at 9 o'clock in the morning. And so this dissuaded me. But there were courses being offered in what was called European Intellectual History. It was a three-semester sequence. And what I loved about this course was that I was able to explore the history of philosophy and literature and social theory, culture, often high culture writ large, over time and in time. So although I was interested in questions of uh, philosophical questions or theoretical questions, questions of social theory, it was the story of ideas over time that really appealed to me. And so when I went to graduate school, there were really, uh, for European intellectual history, and we can talk more about the, the differences methodologically and in terms of subject matter between, in the United States between European and American intellectual history, so there were really two schools um, that were predominant in the 1990s. One was where I studied at Berkeley. My teacher was interested in synoptic intellectual history, summarizing complex ideas succinctly and putting them in relationship to one another talking about their origins and impacts. The other school of thought, really influenced by a lot of literary theory in the 1990s, was, a, was more of a textualist approach, reading inside theories, reading inside the lives uh, of, of intellectual work very closely. So I was drawn to this former one, which is, was the ethos at Berkeley. And we were very lucky in the 1990s, because for whatever reason, there was a very large cohort both in European and American, who were interested. And there was, a, there was a sense of defensiveness about intellectual history in the 1990s, because cultural history had really put intellectual history in the critique of elites on the back foot, uh, asking why should we be studying elite culture, elite ideas, when we need to be restoring the forgotten voices of history in a more popular cultural sense. And so this is, I think, the time when we both arrived. And intellectual history at this moment for me in the 1990s was very freeing because it enabled us to ask questions that were fundamentally, even at this time, interdisciplinary. Because we weren't using that language of an interdisciplinarity, and yet we were able to cross over and make links among politics, 
culture, society, uh, and even economics. Oh, great. Well, my memory as an American is there is that we thought you Europeans were all very arrogant. Um, <laughs> you were right to do so. <laughs> it, it, we were like rival football teams on different floors. But uh, we, thought, we thought the Americans were too pragmatic. <laughs> but in seriousness, I mean, there's some certainly who took intellectual history more in the direction of attempting to historicize the work of great intellectuals. I mean, that's true of your advisor, Martin Jay, who um, was on my dissertation committee and informed me that the subject of my first work was, quote, not a first-rate thinker. Um, but I don't think that that's uh, where you or I were ever coming from in the sense that, I, I, I sense you can correct me if I'm wrong, but your interest was more in politics and society and using the study of ideas to get at that. And that's very apparent in your current work, which we'll get to. But do you want to say a little bit about that? Just, you know, intellectual history, not just as a way of historicizing the work of great thinkers who would be read in philosophy or English departments, but as a way of getting that kind of, um, core historical developments. Yeah. So, you know, most theses and dissertations revolve around a problem, a, a, a question that is nagging that no one else in the literature seems to have answered as well as, uh, that leaves one kind of with this productive discomfort that one has to know more. So my, my problem was being part of a generation that was deeply exposed to a lot of French critical theory that was being imported to England and Ireland and the United States. Names that were familiar a long time ago but had long fallen out of fashion, people like Derrida and Foucault and Deleuze, etc. And I was very um, ill at ease with the political consequences of what I saw as the linguistic or relativistic consequences of some of these theories. So this was my problem. And so I could have, in writing a thesis, just you know, sat in the library and read these texts. But I went to France and conducted interviews and went into the archives. And this is when I really turned to you know, the methods follow the problem and, and, the, and the, the archive or the the data that emerges. And so I, I really had a project for the thesis that was much more contextual, asking and answering the question, what were these thinkers doing in France at this time? A lot gets lost in translation when ideas travel over distances in time. I wanted to resituate for an English-speaking audience what these thinkers were up to and their relationship to the student worker revolts of 1968, which had such a large impact in France, but also around the world. Yeah, so I mean, I think that's, and I'm not sure if you want to see more about that, that first book from Revolution to Ethics, but it's really taking these, you know, postmodernist thinkers and putting them back into history right. and also back into the politics of the 60s and the 70s and, and post-1968 uh, France. Um, do you want to see more about the first book, or sure? Well, that's right. I mean, it, it traces a real shift of the paradigm. So in 1968, as everybody knows, in fact, the first time I came to the, the Hub was a year ago for the conference in 1968, which was, again, taking in, in 2018, it was a global look at this moment. And so, you know, when I started working this it, uh, this project, I think both of us were able to, to do work that was really rooted in one country, and that's become increasingly and rightly more problematic as we've moved towards the transnational circulation of ideas. So we think a lot about the global 60s and the global 1968 right now. But when I was working on my, my, my thesis, it was to situate in France this moment around 1968 where this term revolution had great salience and circulation around the world. It was a predominant paradigm in the developing world, but also in the Northern Hemisphere, all the way from Japan to 
to uh, Berlin, to Paris, to London, uh, to New York and California. And so I noticed that by the early 1980s, that paradigm had obviously collapsed. There had been a shift. Everywhere there was talk of human rights, for example, and no longer revolution. There had been a sea change in the 1970s. And so in looking at some of my French postmodern thinkers, I latched on to a particular theme that came up by in, uh, over the course of the 1970s, but wasn't there at all in 1968, and that was the theme of ethics. Ethics with a great variety of means. I wasn't trying to identify or define ethics for myself, but how did this theme come up for thinkers who may have disagreed amongst themselves, but were part of an ethos in the 1970s? And what I argued in this, in this what became my first book, was that there was a lot of continuity, that in the 1960s, there were emancipatory politics uh, where young people all around the world were trying to imagine different forms of solidarity and justice, different means of freedom and equality. And there's one narrative about the 1960s is that they simply failed and that there was a turning away from emancipatory politics. But what I argued instead is that in a different vernacular, a different translation, there was actually great continuity over the course of the decade I look at, moving into the 1980s. And although language may have changed with emancipation, turning more towards questions of human rights or medical ethics or sexual ethics or gender relationships, interpersonal ethics, institutional ethics, kind of the hopes and aspirations of a particular generation in history, which is itself part of a longer story of emancipatory politics, was translated into a new idiom. And though the word, and I think I said this on Wednesday, revolution doesn't really do much for us these days, and it hasn't for 40 years. Nevertheless, the desire to have greater equality and greater justice, those desires and projects continue in different idioms today with great continuity to this moment in the 60s. Um, yeah, then I would recommend people certainly check out that that uh, that book. Now, that book was a, a quite a circumscribed project in in a, in a sense that makes sense for a first book. It's a group of people in a particular place and time. Your second book, which I think is going to be really wonderful, but it is a very ambitious uh, work that is not going to be in one particular place. It's going to range widely, both geographically and chronologically, looking at a conceptual history of terrorism from the late 18th century up until the 1970s or even into to our own time. Um, and I guess uh, since after you wrote that first book, you got that wonderful thing that uh, we call academic tenure. Um, you had the opportunity to, to do something you know, really ambitious. Um, but where did that project come from? I mean, both intellectually and I suppose politically, because my, at least my memory of it is that this was very much a post 9-11 thought as you were finishing the first book and the kind of George W. Bush and the, and the war on terror. So yeah, tell us just a little bit about the, the intellectual and I suppose the, you know, the, the political roots of that for, for you. Yeah, I mean, it, it really was related to 9-11 to and a very strong memory that evening that really the, the Americans uh, were having an experience that many people around the world have known for decades and generations and the sense of a loss of innocence and the sense of the possibility of learning a lesson of this is what it is like to be a citizen of the world in many places that have experienced violence, horrible violence. Uh, and the United States did not learn that lesson. And when I was teaching intellectual history in the early 2000s, going from Kant to Hegel to Marx to Nietzsche, et cetera, 
Um, the students I had weren't, weren't necessarily, shall we say, inspired by this narrative. So I asked them, what, what do you care about? What, what, what is interesting to you? And this was this particular generation and a very distinctive moment in the United States. They said, we don't understand. We don't understand what this thing called terrorism is. And there was, a, again, a naiveness to that question for them, but this is where they were at. They didn't. None of us choose to be born in the moment of history that we're born into, but this was their paradigm. And so I decided to develop a course for these students uh, on the history of terrorism. And as I started to do a literature review and look at primary sources, I was extremely disappointed by the state of historical research on the topic of terrorism. And my disappointment has not been uh, assuaged in the past decade plus since I started teaching this class. So I still teach this class. It's evolved. The students have evolved. But the literature on terrorism can bro be broken down into a, a, a number of different uh, areas and methodologies. There's security studies and political science, which tends to focus just on the present or the recent past. Um, the flip side, the other side of this coin, coin of focusing on terrorism is the present, is where there are histories of terrorism written by security studies and political scientists, they uh, end up talking about the eternal reality of terrorism. So from cavemen to the present, terror has been the same in all times and places. And as a historian, that's simply just bad history. And when historians have looked at the topic of terrorism, they've zoomed in frequently on particular cases, if not a national case, then a particular moment, a particular turning point. And as I've done this literature review and teaching this class, it, it, the, the, the central thought that's driven this project is terrorism is frequently used as an analytical category, as a lens, a meaning in the present that we project onto the past to look for patterns. But very few people have asked the question, what did this term, terrorism, mean to historical actors in the times and places that they were using it? And it's a story that does go back to the French Revolution, where this first word appears. And it's a story, as many historians do, of change and continuity. So what I've been trying to do in this very long-term research project is find the story of the changing, mutating meanings of this term terrorism which begins in Europe, but becomes a global story by the 20th century, which begins in France, but then also goes to Russia and Eastern Europe, and eventually to the rest of the world. To try to get a, a sense of the, how did we get to the present is a question that matters, but it's a question that involves changes in continuities and accumulations over time. So rather than, again, uh, you know, Hegel is in the book, but this isn't a, a, an intellectual history, it's a conceptual history. What has this term meant at different times and different moments? Terrorism shows up, for example, in Japanese for the first time in the early 20th century. So it involves kind of etymologies and linguistic shifts and also the memes that are associated with it. Now, is it, uh, I mean, I'm interested to learn more about the scope of this, but I just wonder as a, as a question, I mean, I understand terror as a method of the French terror, but terrorism, mm -hmm. is it an ism? Has it been understood as an ism, as a kind of a, like communism or liberalism or that kind of ideology? Yeah, when we take just the French Revolution as an example, I mean, one of the things that's been exciting about this project is these different moments is to, to go in and really problematize commonsensical historiographical judgments. So the notion of the terror of the French Revolution is itself a category that was concocted by Robespierre's enemies after he died. And one month after Robespierre was executed, Robespierre and his friends were executed, 
the word terrorism appears for the first time in print. Now, it's very difficult to say first time. Someone will obviously find another example. But as far as I've found, it's, it appears for the first time, and it means a specific thing. It means the attempt by these Jacobins to set up a tyranny, uh, to set up, to not be revolutionary enough, and to uh, be caught up in the revolutionary war rather than establishing the rule of law. So in this, this crucible moment, we have to be very careful about the categories we use so that the, the commonsensical distinction today between state terror and non-state terrorism, if we use that as an analytical category today, we can get certain things. But my question is, when historically did that distinction first emerge? So the issue in the 1790s was not state terror or non-state terrorism. It was about revolutionary violence. It was violence that was revolutionary without and or limit by, in this case, law that emerged in Thermidor. Well, I guess that goes to one of the big questions that your book will address with contemporary relativists, uh, which is who gets called a terrorist and who doesn't? You know, I mean, we can see this today in, in the sort of, obviously, um, you know, uh, ISIS or Al-Qaeda, they get called terrorists, but uh, white nationalists have been committing acts of terror for decades or only recently being called terrorists in the yeah. same sense. So, but I guess historically, I mean, how do you see that playing out over a couple centuries in terms of those who get that, it's almost always a negative label, as I understand it, pinned on them, and those who, despite the fact that they commit acts of terror, yeah. and in some cases are even non-state actors, somehow escape it. Yeah. Yeah, I thought for a while that, that I could stop with the, the level that the, the words terror and terrorism are always contested, that they are always polemical. So as I said on Wednesday, on a certain first look, we all know what terrorism is. It's, it has a, a, a natural obviousness to all of us in our historical moment. But you scratch a little further, you find the sense of contestedness. Now, it does turn out that in this long conceptual history, there have been people, including in the French Revolution, Russian revolutionaries, Bolsheviks, Indian anti-colonial uh, agitators, who actually embraced the term terrorism with a positive sense. So within this history of polemic and denunciation and naming as a form of denunciation, there's also been very key moments where, and it seems very strange to us today, that someone would give a positive meaning or identification with the language of terrorism, but history shows in these moments that this was the case at different times. So I thought I could rest for a while this level of polemic, but I think what I've found, or the, where I'm working right now, is how I'm interested in the way that um, the concept of terrorism congealed around certain force fields, certain um, dynamics, fields, uh, energies um, that help us explain why this language emerged at different times. And I did refer to this past Wednesday. So for example, revolution I've mentioned, or law, or war, or empire. When we ask the question, why did this language emerge at a particular moment? What did it mean at a particular moment? There are these other factors and forces that help explain it. So I think I want to go, I want to say, below the distinction between state and non-state violence, below the polemical level of denunciation and naming, there are other forces and dynamics that help us explain 
why this language has a particular salience. Because you know the language, and we say we can agree, and this has been true for for long before the French Revolution. The word terror is a very powerful word, denoting the type of existential putting oneself on the line, uh, the fear of death. And this is a very, very, very old word. Terrorism is a much more recent word. And yet, so what's at stake in this for me ultimately are questions about violence and nonviolence. When we use the word terror to describe state violence, we're in some sense drinking from a poisoned well. All states have used violence and fear. And when we rely on the language of terror, we are in some sense acting out on an unconscious historical level, meanings that have accumulated over time. So an kind of odd conclusion I'm moving toward and thinking about this, the real question is about violence and nonviolence and how this language of terror and terrorism itself interferes with asking the real question, which is how can we create a world without violence, not how can we create a world without terror? Because the polemic always lends us, you know, that drone strikes in Western Pakistan are not considered terror in a popular sense, but they certainly are to villagers at a wedding uh, who, for whom death comes out of the sky. Yeah. Um, that's great. I mean, there's one more question I'm going to ask before I open up to the audience. And uh, if I am auditioning for uh, a radio or TV talk show host, uh, if there's anyone in the audience from RTE, you can get my details after the talk. Uh, this is the question that I would be in Ireland have to ask you which is this, what you say all sounds great, but how does it relate to Ireland? I'm so glad you asked. <laughs> no, it's terrific. I, I am not an Irish historian, and I am going through a crash course in Irish history since I've been here. It's marvelous. I've taken several tours of um, Easter and, and War of Independence Ireland, and every tour is completely different, depending <laughs> on who you ask. My, the, 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 again, this is new for me, so you're, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking as I'm talking. There's a way that uh, Ireland is pivotal to the story. I mean, certainly the moment of the Troubles. My story ends in the 1970s, and so I think of the island as a whole. The Troubles were part of a larger pattern. But the work I'm doing here at Trinity and in Dublin during these two months is focusing on the late 19th and early 20th century. And it's asking a specific question, when did British officials start to refer to Irish nationalists as terrorists? How did this discourse, did it emerge? And it turns out that Ireland is probably the key link between the story that comes before, which is about Russia, and the story that comes after, which is about anti-colonialism throughout the British Empire. So that Irish nationalism is really the first successful anti-colonial revolution of the 20th century and sets the template for what happens in Palestine and India and eventually after the war in Malaya and Kenya and other places. And so the way that the language of terror and terrorism becomes associated with anti-colonial violence, shifting from revolution in, in Russia to this anti-colonial moment in terms of British security thinking is actually totally pivotal. And so the phrase that's coming to mind, again, I, I'm a newbie to Irish history, but the, the need to deprovincialize Irish history and write it into global history 
which I'm sure people are doing, but this is, this is a thought that's coming to me, is that, that Ireland is a pivot and, and, a, and a linchpin in this longer narrative of, of discursive shifts, which I think is very, very important. Right. Well, you've, you've flattered our national sense of importance. Um, I say that as a naturalized citizen. But uh, now we'll, we'll open up the audience for you know for any questions of of any nature uh, that you know about your work that we didn't get to or arising out of our our discussion. Please. Yeah. I was curious about how the Algerian War impacted the thinkers of 1968. So, did they think? in some ways that this rise of the Islamist political force was antithetical to the French idea of secularism and mystique, or do they see it as a blow for colonialism and the French Empire, which is kind of dead at that point? That's very good. Did anybody hear the question of that? Yeah. How did um, the French around 1968, how did they deal with Algerian independence? And were at that time, were they thinking about Islam in particular as a threat to French secularism? Is that a fair? Yes, yes. Okay. Do you want to add anything else? Is that... um, and did, did some thinkers, particularly say Maoists, view it as um, a blow to colonialism, that the Algerians had won, but they had done it through something that would have been antithetical to French revolutionaries, which was the use of religion and Islam as okay. a political organizing force? Okay, and, and religion as um, uh, part of the, the, the armament of Algerian independence and did that break with this older French revolutionary tradition? Okay, that's very good. Well, this actually combines my two projects in a way I hadn't thought about before. Um, so, you know, one of the dilemmas I, I, I have in telling a very largely secular story that ends in the 1970s is how do, we, how do I explain the relationship of the concepts of terror and terrorism to the worldwide turn to religion of the late 20th century? And so, as I've been exploring this, the way that religion begins to figure in anti-colonialism, and Ireland comes to mind, Algeria comes to mind, India comes to mind, but religion is part of a larger project which has very little to do with religion at all, and that's national self-determination. So that as indigenous movements of anti-colonialism are seeking to break away from the control, in this case, of the French over Algeria, at their disposal, are indigenous languages, indigenous cultures, which include the religious. Now, Algerian uh, War of Independence, or the Algerian conflict, as the French called it, they never called it a war, is complicated because you do have both revolutionary sides as well as Islamicized. But I guess I want to fold both of those into the project of national self-determination. And so what's very interesting is that the language of Republican laïcité or secularism is not really strong in the 1960s. It's, it, it's, in a, it's, it's always there in the background, but it doesn't have the type of virulent power that we see coming in by the 1980s and 1990s with this Republican revival. And so, if anything, I think religion is not computing in French public spaces. It has much more to do with race, the decline of imperial power, the decentering of Europe, um, the inward-looking nature of France uh, after World War II. And so, um, you, we may have more to talk about here, but, but at, at, a, at a quick look, I, I guess I would say that, that religion is, is not an obsession around 1968. If anything, questions of immigrant labor looms larger than the questions of religion that have come to dominate French public discourse over the past 30 years. Yeah. 
But I'd like to hear more later about what you think. Thanks so much. I really, really enjoyed this conversation so much. Um, I might do a slightly unfair thing, um, Julian, and ask you, uh, I suppose, how you feel your research might have bearing on the current rise of cyber terrorism? And I know you said you, you very clearly demarcate the, the limits of your studies ending in the 70s, but I was wondering, particularly, um, I suppose, in the sense that cyber terrorism is less of a, I don't know, material materialised sense of terrorism, um, one that is less associated with violence, and I suppose, more conceptual, removed from the physicality of the world, maybe. And I was wondering if you could maybe comment on that, or if that's yeah. something you've engaged with at all. That, that is a very unfair question. <laughs> no. So the question is, what about cyber terrorism? How does that fit? Although I'm in my story, historically in the 1970s, how do we think about it today? And so um, I really don't have very much to say. I think that I think I can show that the idea of uh, violence known as terrorism today that is post-revolutionary and, say, uh, post-nationalist that deals with networks and rides the waves, including cyber waves of globalization that is still in the process of emerging in its chaotic incoherence, um, that uh, there is great work and there, uh, there are others who uh, would be better positioned to comment critically on this new space in which we inhabit. I guess all I can really show is that what we call terrorism, including cyber terrorism, in this transversal, networked world that we live in today is the residue of another of an earlier historical moment. So lately I've been, I came across a, a, a concept that, that is that I'm, uh, I'm spending time figuring out of, you know, in this, this my, my historical period I look at in which these terms revolutionary nationalism is a paradigm. There's certain possibilities within that paradigm, but what it also does is that it creates another space. That other space is the one we live in right now. After its decline, revolutionary nationalism, we are in this moment of incipient chaotic globalization. Now, I'm totally skirting the question of cyber because I'm folding the notion of cyber terrorism into this larger network space. So again, I'm not equipped to comment critically on this except to say that we've arrived in this space, we're in this space. It's very hard to see it from the outside because we're living through it. In a way, I think, as a historian, I can say certain other periods have ended and what we call terrorism today is a remainder of a period that is closed. And so there's, there's echoes of this earlier moment. But I'm not the person to be able to comment critically on cyber terrorism. No, thank you so much. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Hope that was okay. Yeah, in the back there. I thought about the fact that the word rebellion and rebel, that these words are not used anymore as they were there. Very good question. Have I thought about how rebellion and rebel are not used as much? Absolutely. I mean, this, this is the incredible thing that I see since the 1970s, is that the, the language of terror and terrorism is both incredibly narrow and incredibly inflated. And this language has become a black box and a very limited vocabulary that has replaced a much a, 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 a historical era in which there were many words, sedition, rebellion, insurgency, uh, revolution, etc. And so that there's, there's other languages, other frames, and other historical moments, and all of those different types of even dissent 
are folded into this, packed into this black box of terror and terrorism, so much so that in the United States, for example, the Department of Homeland Security you know, was weighing whether to, to label Black Lives Matter a terrorist organization. And there's a danger with counterterrorism right now that all dissent, including nonviolent contestatory dissent, can be folded into a threat to status quo. <coughs> so the words rebel and rebellion have a power and salience in Irish history. And they, they remain that so. And so we have to look at national differences. But overall, there's been a tendency and trend globally to take, say we call terminological variety that expresses different forms of social action, violent and nonviolent, and to boil it down and reduce it just to this language of terror, terrorism today, which is not in any way to endorse horrific violence. But it's just simply to note the historical conditions under which we live, which involves a certain inflation and narrowing along the lines that you've suggested. It's an excellent point. Okay. Uh, yeah, thanks for a great talk. Uh, I wonder, have you looked at all about the relationship between the concept of conspiracy and terrorism? Both, to my mind, because I guess all terrorism requires a conspiracy to start with, but also they tend to arise in the same sort of situations with decaying institutions or maybe a loss of faith in a governing system um, and any terrorist incident that happens tends to also create a lot of a countervailing conspiracy theory. Mm -hmm. Yeah, conspiracy certainly figures along the way, and I, I kind of I have a, a very large box of things that are relevant and related, but I'm not going to handle directly. So, for example, pirates would be another one or tyrannicide. There's, there's other f historical phenomenon, all of which I just named, including conspiracy, there's great work on. I'm latching on to, um, uh, I'll just give you one example from the French Revolution that, that is incidental at that moment that becomes important later. Um, the language of cannibal is used, that terrorists are cannibals. And the way this relates to the comment about civilization the other week, the way that those who perpetrate terror are savages, they are not civilized like that. So, so I make a lot of this word cannibal, which is incidental in this moment, but goes on to play a much larger role in the dynamics of empire. I deliberately choose not to deal with something like conspiracy, although, you know, I, and this, the, the project I'm doing can only be collaborative, it can only sort of reach out and connect with what others uh, want to bring to it. So it's absolutely germane, but I've kind of made the decision not to engage with the, the dynamics of conspiracy. Yeah, me. Oh, yeah. That was great. James has really whetted the appetite for the book. I can't wait to, to, to read it when it finally comes out. Just two things, one very quick observation and then just a, a question following through. I think to start with the parochial, if you're looking at Ireland, I think you actually need to go back before Easter 1916. I think it's actually the Fenians in the 1860s and into the 1870s where the idea of terror uh, and, and violence as a means of which challenge the state actually emerges far more uh, um, um, visibly. And I think it actually feeds into a lot of the anarchic violence that comes out in the 1880s and 1890s. Uh, and actually you see that the, the anarchists are oftentimes referring to the Fenians in terms of tactics used and whatever. So I think just in, in, for your own view, I think you need to actually go back. So I'm not as convinced by this idea about the pivot between Fred and Russian revolution and uh, anti-colonial violence. I think it actually predates 
Russian Revolution by at least 50 years. And I think it's a very interesting phenomenon, the emergence of the Fenians and their very particular tactics, uh, particularly in the 1870s and 1880s. Uh, and I think you'll see the British state actually using the term and beginning to, to see uh, a particular challenge emerging from them. So that's just a, that's a, like a local observation in terms of, of the Irish situation. I'm, I'm actually fascinated, I think, going back to the question that Dan raised, the distinction between terror and terrorism, uh, and why you choose the late 18th century, because as an early modernist, of course, I'm highly offended that you think that the late 18th century is when all these things are to emerge. <laughs> when when actually, it, it actually clearly comes up in the early modern period. Yeah. Now, obviously, you need parameters for a project. Already, it's such an ambitious project, so you know, I mean, I understand the practical reasons for it, but I, I'm just wondering why in particular, and, and you mentioned a couple of times again this link with nationalism, mm. and I think that most people see the emergence of nationalism from the French Revolution onwards. So are you actually, if you like, connecting those, those two uh, uh, things in your conceptualization of terror? Because we see the word terror being used frequently in the early modern period, very specifically related to violence, yeah. uh, and, and in a very positive way. We must terrorize these people. We have to use terror to defeat. We have to, I mean, they're, they're constantly using it, and not in that negative connotation that we now associate with. So I'm just, in a very long-winded way, if you see, just wondering why, why in particular the late 18th century. That's great, that's great. Um, so, to, to the first point, absolutely uh, uh, about the Fenians. I mean, when I talk about this, this rush into Ireland hinge, it's in 1888 to 81. I mean, it's the Phoenix Park murders and it's the dynamite campaign in, in England in this moment where the Tsar is assassinated in 1881 by these Russian revolutionaries who call themselves terrorists. And then the media picks this up. Now, what I haven't found yet is are the British using this word? In terms of practices of violence, there's all sorts of connections and influences. So I absolutely agree with the, with the first point. Um, the second point, this is tough, and I, I think that uh, anybody who studies uh, the medieval or early modern period is, is right to ask the fundamental question, what about us? <laughs> Which is fair. Um, so the modest claim I would make is that I'm simply delimiting my study and beginning here. But I think I do want to make a, a, a stronger claim about the thematization of these terms terror, uh, and a term that doesn't exist before the late 18th century terrorism, as in, as in, and all that goes with that is, is ideology, kind of the ideology of terror. Um, there's been a, a recent book by a guy named Ron Schechter about, called The Genealogy of Terror in 18th Century France, which is incredibly helpful for me because the language of terror, particularly in the tradition of, say, divine right, that God exercises terror on his enemies. And kings, therefore, the, the oath of the king of France in the 18th century was to declare himself the terror of his enemies. And the king's laws inspire terror, which can be salutary, which can be beneficial, the terror we feel before God. So there is this incredible positive valence that is happening. And I guess why I focus in the late 18th century, in the French Revolution in particular, is there's a transfer of sovereignty from the hierarchical to the popular. Now, there are rebellions throughout history, there's also, there's, and there's practices of violence, and there's always violence and fear. The question is not, you know, when is there not violence and fear? The question is, when does terror become thematized as a problem to remove? And I relate this to this moment of the transfer of sovereignty from this figure of the king who, with divine right in the French case, is able to exercise terror on his subjects 
and subjects feel terror and it can be good for them. Uh, Ron Schechter even talks about how uh, there's a medical discourse of terror in the 18th century that it's, it's good for you to feel afraid sometimes, <laughs> right? Which is why we ride roller coasters and see horror movies, get our heart rate up. Um, but I do want to insist that there are developments that are distinct to the 19th and 20th century that have to do with the role of the people in politics and culture that have to do with uh, the thematization of terror, and above all, what Hans Joas calls the dream of modernity without violence. So ultimately, this language of terror that I focus on in the late modern period is in a dialectic with the possibility of nonviolence. And so I know there's, there is work on nonviolence in the early modern period. Um, but I guess as a, as a late modern historian, I want to make a stronger claim, not just a weak claim, limitation, but a stronger claim that there are some distinctive developments in the 19th and 20th century that have to do with nonviolent cultures or nonviolent public spaces. And that is the context out of which the thematization of terror happens. So there's much broader discussion that we have about the role of terror in Montesquieu is very important. It's, it's less important than Hobbes, surprisingly. I thought terror, no, it's fear. Fear and terror are not the same for him. So I mean, we, we can go thinker by thinker. Um, and again, there's other work to be done, or work to be done by others, contributing to, the, to really a collaboration of how to think about the history and genealogy of these concepts. So, and that's why, in the end, default to the modest claim, which is I'm just looking at the, the 19th and 20th century, but excellent points. Joe. Unlike me, you I'm reasonably pleased to On that basis, I've got a slightly nitpicking question, and that was the, um, you're identifying this Thermidorian moment when terrorism, or terrorists are, are invented as a category. But of course, people are talking about terror well before that, as you, uh, you, know, as you just said. Uh, but they're also applying it in a political context uh, in the revolutionary decade. So I was wondering, is there a sharper distinction to be drawn here between the decision to name somebody else a terrorist mm. and those who embrace terror themselves as uh, an aspiration. Of course, that becomes a much more legitimate label to uh, to use with Russian anarchism and so forth. But you know, at this early stage, we do see um, uh, before that Thermidorian invention of the category of terrorists, we do see people uh, espousing terror as a as a, a praxis. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm wondering, it comes back in a way to Neil's question about that longer history of terror as a praxis. And so what's the vocabulary that is being used to describe that, it be it in the Savannah, you know, among the Anabaptists in Munster? Well, I have nothing to say about the Anabaptists, but to, to go to the French Revolution, you're absolutely right, and there's a, there's a rapid transfer and shift. I mean, early in the Revolution, the language of terror is everywhere. It's a common term. It's a synonym for great fear. And it is true that the Jacobins instrumentalize it, but they mean something very particular, is that we are going to do what is necessary to win this revolutionary war, which is both foreign and domestic. But I, I like very much what you say about the shift to accusation. I am, would avoid the question of praxis of violence and praxis of fear. I'm deliberately drawing that line. Because once we start using the language of terror to ourselves describe different moments of fear, this, this, this is the great ghost haunting this project. 
is that the danger of anachronism is so strong that this term is so loaded and carries so much weight today that when we start applying it to different moments where the actors themselves are not using that term, then we are projecting our own world uh, onto this past. So um, another project would do a better job about engaging with what are the types of practices of violence, what are the experiences of fear, what are the expectations of violence and fear at particular moments. I'm losing myself merely to the discursive, which, as you bring up the revolution, it's very good as a shift from a common language in 1790 to Babeuf in 1795, saying, well, I thought, I thought Brodeur was a bad guy, but actually the third door is worse, and so if terrorist is what we need to do, then I'm a terrorist, right? And so that's it. In just five quick years, there is a sea change in, in this meaning that, that um, at least, I haven't looked far, but I don't see other examples before that moment in the early modern period where you have such a, a rapid, intense, semantic shift with long-term consequences. Because the consequences of the French Revolution to today, I think I can chart pretty clearly. Whereas this pre-revolutionary uh, fecundity of the, of the language, which is certainly there, it's less clear to me how we can trace uh, connections and sorts over time. I think I've completely avoided your question. <laughs> well done. <laughs> James, quickly. Just very, I'm conscious we're running out of time, Julian. Yeah. It's been a fascinating discussion. And on a number of occasions, you mentioned interdisciplinarity, you mentioned collaboration. Here we are in a research institute that's all about interdisciplinarity and having those conversations. What does meaningful collaboration and interdisciplinarity look like from your perspective? in this particular context. So that discussion around terror, who needs to be around the table to actually have a truly interdisciplinary conversation, which we are assuming is also collaborative? Just a quick reaction would be, um, first, you know, the, the topic is so hot and loaded, everybody in this room has something to say about it, <laughs> right? And, and, and from an informed, educated, either questions of methodology, questions of background, other examples, other cases. So within the humanities, I think that certain topics lend themselves as hot, fissionable materials to um, stimulate conversation and dialogue. I guess what I'm finding, and, and I've been having these conversations here. I mean, the first week I was here, I was sent by bibliographical resources about the language of terror in antiquity, right? Uh, and the Mediterranean antiquity. The harder conversation to have is for all of us humanists to talk to social scientists because the study of terror and terrorism is almost exclusively in the domain uh, of the social scientists uh, or, starting to marry the other day, or of practitioners. Mm -hmm. So the harder thing is how can humanists working from a variety of different disciplines and methodologies how can we translate our insights? I mean, a very fair question you know, could ask of me is like, well, so what your history ends in the 1970s? How does that change what we think, and more importantly, what do we do today? And this, I think, is, is, needs to be a conversation that humanists have more broadly, regardless of our topic, but how do we connect to other types of knowledge, and, and more importantly, public space and politics? 
Right, well, thank you all very much for coming. I mean, I've got a really good sense, I think, of the overall outlines of the project, the kind of the skeleton, if you like. And if you're interested in seeing some uh, that be fleshed out in a particular case, you know, please do come on 19th of November to hear Julian talk about the First World War in the history of terrorism. Uh, thanks to you all for coming, and thank you especially to Julian for, for being here and for speaking about your work. Thanks so much.